Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. And you have found the dark oak. Come with us as we discuss Amelia Earhart, her accomplishments, her bravery, and her mysterious disappearance. Welcome to the Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of our earnings from our Patreon and sponsors to a nonprofit organization of your choosing. To find out how you can be part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we will give you all the details. Thank you, Cynthia. Today, we are going to talk about one of my straight up heroes, Amelia Mary Earhart. I know we've kind of alluded to the fact that I had a kind of sheltered childhood. I didn't get to listen or watch to almost anything spooky. I got to read spooky things. And somehow I stumbled upon Amelia Earhart for one of my middle school book reports, realized it was not only a totally inspirational tale because of Amelia Earhart, but was also a mystery at the end. It was like the best of both worlds for me. Huge mystery. Huge mystery. 90 years later, we're still talking about it. I'm really excited to share the legend that was Amelia Earhart, more details about her. And even though I've known a lot about Amelia Earhart over the years, it was really neat to kind of go and brush up on my history of what she was able to accomplish for women. And then we'll explore some theories about what happened to her on her final flight and where she is now. I'm super excited because other than knowing that she disappeared on this flight, that's really all I know. So I'm excited to learn. I'm really excited, too. This is one of our Branch of Hope fun cases. Uh, You covered um, the Peterson case last week and told us all about uh, Superstition Search and Rescue Fund. And today I'm going to give you some more details about the 99s and their Amelia Earhart Fund. These are our two choices for your votes this month uh, to receive a portion of all of our proceeds. So really excited to tie it all together for you. I'm so excited. (laughs) Amelia Mary Earhart was born on July 24th, 1897 in Atchison, Kansas. And Atchison, Kansas is just as small and quaint as you imagine it is. (laughs) I'm Uh, having visions of Dorothy. Yes, it's Mm -hmm. very much that it wasn't known for much until Amelia came along. And even today, it only has 11,000 residents. And it's really funny to think about such a dynamic personality coming out of such a sleepy town. However, Amelia would go on to really change air travel, especially in regards to women forever. Amelia was born to Edwin Earhart, a local attorney, and his wife, a debutante named Amy. She was born in the home of her maternal grandfather, Alfred Otis, who was one of the most successful and prominent men in Atchison. He was a former federal judge and the president of the Atchison Savings Bank. And while he was a very supportive father and grandfather, he had a lot of reservations about Edwin's abilities to support his budding family. He was an attorney, but he really had a hard time finding gainful employment. And so there was always a little bit of tension in that area. Two years later, Amelia would be joined by her sister named Grace Muriel. She eventually just went by Muriel. 
And the two would become fast friends and both would later comment on their mother's very unconventional style. She homeschooled the girls and also taught them how to be strong and independent. She spent more time teaching them to think rather than to comply with conventional norms. Love that. With love, heart. Amelia shirked conventional feminine style, too. And she loved wearing bloomers. And she loved to collect frogs and bugs and had collections of creepy crawlies. Stuff that would now be classified as tomboyish type stuff. But to her, the way she was raised, her mom, that was just a normal way to be. Okay. In 1907, when Amelia was 10, her father was relocated by his job to Des Moines, Iowa. It was decided that Amelia's mother would join her father, but that the girls would stay with their grandparents. Two years later, they joined their parents in Iowa, where they tried to pick up their home studies, but it just wasn't clicking for them. It was decided that the girls needed to attend public school. Amelia was now in seventh grade, and while you would think she would struggle joining a new school at such a late age, the opposite was true, and she excelled and was known around the school for her cleverness and eagerness to learn, so she just, like, dove right in there. She made tons of friends, and the teachers just adored her. A bit later that year, Amelia's father took Amelia to the Iowa State Fair, where an airplane was displayed to the public. The Wright brothers had flown their plane just a few years earlier, and It technically was a plane, but it's not the plane that we picture in our heads now. I mean, it was much more rudimentary looking. And Amelia was asked by her father if she would like to go for a ride in the airplane. And Amelia simply answered that she would like to go back to the merry-go-round. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't her thing back then. (laughs) Around this time, Amelia's father, Edwin, was given a promotion at his job, and the family moved to a larger, nicer house. Unfortunately, this move proved damaging for the family, though, as both Edwin and Amy started spending well above their means, and the family soon found themselves running out of money. This led Edwin into a deep depression, and her father retreated into alcoholism. Oh, no. Yeah. By late 1910, Amelia was taken back to her grandparents' home. Not super stable here. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. When she arrived, she found her grandmother very ill. She spent much of the next year caring for her grandmother while also keeping up with her schoolwork. When her grandmother passed, her will left a significant inheritance to Amelia's mother, Amy, but it came with stipulations. The money must remain in a trust for 20 years or until after Edwin died. They were worried that he would squander it because of his alcoholism. I mean, that was really smart. And at the same time, like, oh, that's. Yeah, not a great feeling. Edwin was crushed. Sure. Right. And enraged, I'm sure. And so this was not a great time. And that only caused him to drink more. You know, right. he was just depressed now. Right. He's like, nobody expects anything of me. So he started to drink more. Then he lost his job because he's drinking too much. He relocated his family again to St. Paul, Minnesota. These are not like small moves, by the way. These are like big moves. Yeah. I mean, challenging for young kids. So they moved to St. Paul, Minnesota for a new job. But the move did nothing to help his addiction. And Amelia, who was now in high school, became kind of resentful of her father's alcoholism losing jobs, making the family move, uprooting her from what she knows. So one night she stumbled upon a bottle of her father's whiskey and in frustration, she snatched it up and began pouring it down the drain. But her father walked in. Oh no. It's not a good scene, right? So enraged, he 
like raised his hand to hit her. Mm-hmm. Luckily, her mother came around the corner at the same time and actually grabbed Edwin's arm so he wasn't able to hit her. But she stated that that really changed her relationship with her father from there on out. Well, he hadn't actually hit her. The memory stuck with her as if he had. Sure, he was going to. He was going to. Exactly. And all she was doing was trying to help. Her reaction was reasonable. Right. Yeah. In the fall of 1915, Edwin claimed to have been given a job in Springfield, Missouri. The family followed him and lived in a boarding house. As it turned out, there was no job and there were no prospects of a job. So not really sure why that came about. Maybe he was running for something, from something, wow. to something. I don't know. That would cause resentment, though. Um, yes. Yeah. So needless to say, the Earhart family finally disintegrated mm-hmm. at that point. Edwin and Amy separated. Edward returned to, returned to Kansas and Amy and the two girls moved to Chicago to live with Amy's sister and there until they could kind of get their feet under them. Amelia really struggled at this time. It was very difficult for her to make friends. I mean, I'm sure she's just feeling lost at this point. And one of the reasons she had a tough time making friends is that she also took her education very seriously. Mm, okay. And it was even a more like <laughs> it was even more escalated than this teacher's pet because at the start of the new school year she was assigned to what i would call a very irresponsible english teacher who basically told the kids to entertain themselves for an hour and she would just give them an a which i've had teachers that phone it in for sure but this one was pretty like out there of course all the kids loved it they just had a free period but amelia felt insulted Like, how dare you not teach me? I'm here to learn. So she created a petition and circled it around the school to try to get the teacher fired. Okay, so clearly that's going to make her so popular with all the other students. (laughs) It did not go well and did not succeed. Okay. The teacher stayed and she was still assigned to that class. Well, and that's sad because at least move her to a different class. No, they gave her the option basically just to sit out in the library during the class period. So she basically hid in the library. It was really bad. Um, She was miserable. She didn't even attend her graduation ceremony. And the yearbook caption under her photo reads, quote, A.E., the girl in brown who walks alone. No. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Wow. Well, uh, yeah. Who's laughing now? I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, But it's all to tell you, hey, you teenagers out there, you're struggling. This is not it. Oh, no, it's not. It's not it. Like, keep going. Oh, you yeah. will make it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I, the kid I was in high school and then the woman I am now, I'm like, oh, man, if I could just tell her a few things. <laughs> Even like, now, I tell 40-year-old me, like, just wait another 20 years. Right. Wait until you have more wisdom. Wait until you've experienced more things. Right. Like, this is not the end. Not at know? all. It's barely the beginning. Exactly. Exactly. So, anyway, the girl in brown who walks alone. Oh, yeah. Amelia's mother eventually found out that her brother, who was in charge of the estate left to Amy when her mother had died, had been slowly squandering parts of the trust. Amy took the matter to court. A judge subsequently ruled that Amelia's grandmother had been incompetent when she had originally signed her will, and Amy was able to collect the inheritance due to her immediately. Amy immediately paid for Amelia's college tuition at Ozong School for Girls. It was a junior college that would eventually become part of Penn State University. In 1916, she arrived on campus via train. 
Unfortunately, the owner and headmistress, Abby Sutherland, not only kept students busy to diminish social time and troublemaking, she believed that if you were idle at all, you know, what is that saying? Oh, idle hands are the devil. The devil's workshop. Yes. Yes. She totally believed that. Um, So she made sure that nobody had any time for dilly-dallying. Like there was always constructive things to do, which isn't necessarily a bad thing for young people. I do agree. However, she was a little over the top. But she also heavily stressed instruction on correct social behaviors. Amelia wrote home to her mother describing how on one occasion, the female students were taught how to sit properly in a chair. There was a chair that was put in the center of the room and each girl took their turn in trying to sit properly. That was part of their college education. Okay. So take from that what you will. While many social graces were missed on Amelia, she nevertheless did go on to charm all of her instructor instructors, including Miss Sutherland. Oh, yeah, of course she. Did. At the end, she was like, "Yeah, she's pretty clever." <laughs> <laughs> In 1917, Amelia left her schooling early to help wounded soldiers returning home from the war from World War One. She joined a military hospital in Toronto and treated many soldiers whose lungs had been damaged by chemical warfare, which I cannot even imagine. That sounds terrible. Like all things that Amelia did, she threw herself into the job. Uh, She also went sightseeing with her sister Muriel and went horseback riding and played tennis. So she got out a little bit. Okay. It was while she was horseback riding that she met three men from the RCF, the Royal Canadian Force. At their invitation, the two girls were invited to a military airfield. Amelia was hooked. This was the time. She next attended an air show where she was stunned by aircraft and pilots. One of the highlights of the day was a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace. The pilot overhead spotted Earhart and her friend who were watching from an isolated clearing and dived at them with the plane. She said, I am sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. Earhart stood her ground, however, as the aircraft came close. She said, I did not understand it at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. Oh, my gosh. That's so cute. That almost makes me want to cry for some reason. That gets me emotional. Yeah. She just felt totally moved. Right. November 11th, 1918 finally saw the end of World War I. The following year, Amelia returned to the United States and enrolled in a pre-medical program at Columbia University in New York. There, she rented a communal room, and by all accounts, she enjoyed her her time and made many friends. After a year, though, she decided to come to the West Coast, where she would live close to her newly reconciled parents. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Amelia also began to heal her relationship with her father. So it looked like things were coming back together. She and her father attended an air show in Long Beach. Edwin, seeing a chance to bond with Amelia, took Amelia to a local airfield and bought her a ticket for a flight. It was $10 for a 10-minute flight. Aww. Which actually is kind of like a lot of money, I think. Yeah, back back then it probably, but imagine what that would cost now. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, She said she knew before she even took off that she had to fly. She just sat in the plane and said, this is it. Like, I see my life. Yeah. Amelia met a 24-year-old woman named Netta Snook. While only a year older than Amelia, Netta was a pioneering young pilot that happily took Amelia under her wing. Amelia paid Netta for lessons at Kenner Field, 
and it didn't take long for Amelia to excel. Being a pilot wasn't enough for Amelia, however, and she soon decided to own her own plane. Aided by her mother and saving every penny she earned, she purchased her own plane in 1922 from the owner of the airfield, Burt Kenner. It was a bright yellow biplane that she immediately christened the Canary. Oh my gosh, that's adorable. I know! So fun. After her first successful solo landing, she bought a new leather flying coat. Due to the newness of the coat, she was subjected to teasing. So she aged her coat by sleeping in it and staining it with aircraft oil. (laughs) But after that, every weekend was spent flying and performing at air shows and rodeos. Wow. Yeah. What a life. The first record Amelia was able to break was the altitude for a female pilot. On October 22nd, 1922, Amelia soared 14,000 feet, making her the highest flying female pilot to date. Amelia officially received her aeronautical pilot's license about seven months later. She was the 16th woman in the world to do so. Go, girl. You go. Unfortunately, though, Amelia's home life continued to suffer. Mm. And after their brief reconciliation, in 1924, her parents officially filed for divorce. Amelia and Amy moved to Boston to be with Muriel, who had enrolled in school there. Amelia even sold the canary to buy a car to drive her mother to Boston. Oh, yeah. A lot of changing dynamics here. As a side note, the man who purchased the plane from Amelia crashed the plane on his very first flight in it, killing himself and his passenger. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, while this was, of course, unsettling to Amelia, she explained most of the bad juju away by saying that it was probably just pilot error or overconfidence. And do we know? We don't. We don't know. We don't know. But it didn't deter her. She just said, well, it was, it couldn't have been the plane. We don't really know. But anyway, I don't know. Maybe she dodged a bullet. Maybe it really was pilot error. I don't know. I assume there would be a little bit of survivor's guilt even if you did truly think that yeah and again and definitely she had feelings like oh my gosh that's terrible i sold him this plane yeah but she didn't feel any any fear that it could have happened to her well good yeah while pleased to be with her mother amelia really wanted more and she asked her mother to pay for her return to columbia university in new york but it was not to be as money ran out just a semester later and she was forced to withdraw Mm. I feel like so much of Amelia's life is like these start, stops, start, stops. Amelia found employment as a social worker, but always felt aviation calling to her. As an answer to this call, Amelia sought entry and was accepted into the Boston branch of the Aeronautics Society. But Amelia still needed a plane to fly. Bert Kenner, remember that name? He was the manufacturer of Amelia's beloved canary, saw an opportunity, and gave Amelia a plane to fly for demonstrations. Okay. As a bonus, Amelia became an official sales representative for the company. Okay. Yeah. It's good to know people. It definitely is good to know people. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh flew New York to Paris. Earhart couldn't believe it. She also couldn't believe the fame Lindbergh received. Amelia wanted it. She was now almost 30, and she wasn't sure how much of a role air flight might play in her life. However, in April of 1928, Amelia received a call with a very intriguing invitation. 
she was asked to join two other men in what would be a publicity stunt on a transatlantic flight. Amelia would accompany pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot mechanic Lewis Gordon on a transatlantic flight called the Friendship. The morning of the scheduled flight, the plane was flown to Newfoundland for fuel. But unfortunately, progress was stalled at this point for two weeks until weather improved. Again, the start and stop. But the morning of the passage, the Friendship left Newfoundland and 20 hours later landed in Wales. Wow. I can't imagine. Their flight broke records and made Amelia the first woman to cross the Atlantic by air. After Amelia's return to the U.S., Amelia became a celebrity. Following Charles Lindbergh's nickname of Lucky Lindy, she was nicknamed Lady Lindy. G.P. Putnam, a publishing company that participated in the organization of the Friendship Flight, wrote a book about Amelia and her experiences. So she got some extra bonuses out Mm -hmm. of this flight that she did. Amelia goes on to take tests to obtain her transport pilot's license. She's now the fourth woman in the world to do so. With her earnings, Amelia purchased a Lockheed Vega, and she enters herself into an all-female race where she goes on to set three more records. George Putnam of G.P. Putnam remained responsible for all of her publicity. Amelia was respected for her rugged determination, wit, bravery, and tenacity. Soon, though, many began to wonder if George Putnam, uh, known as GP, was more interested in Amelia's story or maybe just Amelia herself. Oh, yes. okay. It was a small little budding romance. Mm-hmm. Um, after GP was divorced from his first wife, they were kind of estranged by the time he had met Amelia. Um, but after his divorce, he and Amelia quickly wed. Okay. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. Um, and Putnam was a decade older than Amelia. And many wondered if this was maybe a marriage of convenience over passion. I mean, after all, isn't it great to be married to someone who can promote you and make you look really good? And it was true. I mean, Putnam had basically made her a household name. But from what everybody can tell, they had a very good relationship as well. Well, and it's funny to me because I hear a 10-year age difference and that that I know lots of people who have a 10-year age difference. Like that's not even, doesn't seem that large, yeah. big to me. And and again, from all accounts, they had a really great relationship. Right. So maybe it was twofold. Right. You know, and I think he was really enamored with her. I mean, she's unstoppable. Right. She's incredible. Right. She, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Amelia's next record-setting flight was from Newark, New Jersey to Oakland, California with Putnam promoting her from beginning to end. But soon, Amelia set her sights on piloting her own transatlantic flight. The problem was that Amelia had was not comfortable with instrument flying, which was necessary to soar over the Atlantic Ocean. Maps and flying by sight was not a possibility. I mean, you're over the ocean, the wide blue ocean. There are no landmarks. There's, no, there's nothing to tell you where to go. You have to do it by instruments. So she started studying up. At almost exactly five years after Charles Lindbergh's crossing, Amelia left for her own record-setting transatlantic flight in her trusty Lockheed Vega. Only four hours into the flight, she ran into a storm that would mean she would 
fight to save her life for the rest of the flight. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Listen to this. Because of the storm, a sheet of ice developed around the aircraft, rendering all the instruments useless. Oh, no. She had no. no idea where her altitude was or her speed was. And the ice was now weighing down the plane. So you're burning more fuel. And then it wound up covering the exhaust. And so it was pumping gas fumes into the cabin. And she reported that she could feel fuel from the broken reserve tank dripping down her neck. So she's literally feeling this fuel that she needs to make the crossing just draining out. And I'm assuming she doesn't really know where she is either because her instruments are not Absolutely working. not. She has okay. no idea where so she is. So she's lost. Yeah. So, I mean, she's hoping she can even has enough fuel to make it to shore if she can even find the find shore. It, right. Because, yeah. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> Incredibly, she made it. She was way off course. And she wound up landing in this tiny little field in Londonderry, Ireland. Okay. I mean, literally, she pulled up and there were like sheep herders that are like, who are you? She's never been happier to see some sheep. Yes, that's exactly wow. right. But she made it. I mean, she yeah. did it. And this proved to be really her big, big break. And by 1933, she and Putnam were being wine and dined by celebrities. Um, their most significant celebrity friends were Eleanor and then President-elect Franklin Roosevelt. Okay. Which, I mean, you know people, right? You know people. <laughs> In 1935, Amelia set another flying record from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California in an 18-hour flight where she landed in front of 10,000 people. Oh, wow. So, so she was really doing it. Yeah. Next, she performed a solo flight from Los Angeles to Mexico City and then an even longer trip from Mexico City to New Jersey. At this point, though, Amelia felt she had tested her Lockheed Vega to its limits. She wanted to fly higher and faster. Three days later, on her 39th birthday, she purchased her own Lockheed Electra, which promised to provide her both. Amelia tried her hand at a speed race, but only came in fifth. It became clear that long distance was her strength. She began to construct a plan that would allow her to circumnavigate the globe. Whoa, okay. As you can imagine, loads of planning went into this endeavor, specifically refueling. Right. The most dangerous area would be over the Pacific, where she would need to land on an island to refuel before continuing on. Because there was, she would not have enough fuel to make it from like mainland to mainland. So she was going to have to land on a tiny little island in the Pacific in order to get fuel. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. They decided on a small little lonely island called Howland Island, which would genuinely be like finding a needle in a haystack. Amelia and her husband decided she would need a navigator to help her with the seemingly impossible task. So they recruited a navigation expert named Fred Noonan from the budding Pan American Airlines. He would use dials and controls of aircraft as well as his own charts to help Amelia they also recruited a second navigator named Harry Manning, and uh, Paul Mance would come along as a co-pilot. On March 17, 1937, Amelia and her crew set off on the first leg of their journey, uh, which was Oakland, California, to Honolulu, Hawaii. Unfortunately, the plane had technical issues on the flight. Upon further inspection, it became clear the propellers needed major work. The Lockheed Electra was taken to Hawaiian Naval Airfield, and Pearl Harbor, 
The plane was set to take off just a few days later, but was stalled when the plane's landing gear collapsed right before takeoff. This caused the plane's propellers to crash into the pavement, sending sparks and shrapnel everywhere as the plane careened off the runway. Wow. This is very dramatic. Yeah. Very dramatic, but thank goodness it happened on the ground. Yeah. As opposed to... It's true. It's true. I mean, this was a major setback to this flight, though. Sure. Um, They had no other choice but to table the flight. And what was left of the Electra was put onto a boat and transported to the Lockheed factory in California, where it was originally built to try to be repaired. Unfortunately for the Earhart's, the cost to repair the plane was more than they could afford. Mm. I mean, they're talking like a major rebuild. Luckily for Amelia, though, G.P. Putnam knew some wealthy individuals. And due to his PR moves, Amelia would soon be back in the flight seat. I was going to say, she should have enough uh, stock behind her that... She's got a few investors there. Yeah. For Amelia's second attempt at circumnavigating the Earth she would fly only with Fred Noonan. And I'm not really sure what made that change. I'm not sure if just changes in calendar, you know, like dates, maybe the other two couldn't come. But whatever it is, it was only Amelia and Fred Noonan on this trip. The pair took off on June 1st, 1937 from an airfield in Miami. Along the way, stops were made in Central and South America before stopping in Ley, New Guinea. Earhart and Noonan would stay on at Ley until July 2nd. So it was almost a full month that they had planned out. They wanted to wait for the right window of weather, those kinds of things. Their next destination was Howland Island in the Pacific Ocean, an island that was only 1,600 feet across. That is not big. No, that is very small. The craft had 1,100 gallons of fuel. Just enough to reach Howland Island with very little to spare. That's terrifying. It is absolutely. I mean, I actually my my husband, for I listen to my husband as a Navy pilot as well, and I couldn't wait to tell him this story because he actually understands what this means. He was like, "This is absolutely nuts." This is absolutely not. He understands how scary this would. be. I know. I'm like, but these are pioneers. These are pioneers of flight. You know. I mean really truly taking their lives in their own hands to accomplish something no one has ever done before so i mean you have to be a little you have to be a little nutty to want to accomplish some of these things but they're the ones that do the amazing things this is why we're this is why we're talking about her right right because she's a little nutty (laughs) she's a little (laughs) nutty and brave and 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 just you know incredible it's amazing i wish i was a little more nutty like this in this way, you know? Yeah. A little, and, fearless. And just, fearless. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to describe it. Fearless. Amelia would say before her arduous journey, please know I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. Ooh, girl. Yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. The next anyone heard from Amelia was from a radio transmission received by the U.S. Coast Guard vessel Itasca, which was positioned by Howland Island. She was reporting the weather conditions, and all she said was cloudy weather, cloudy. Now, the Itasca was there to not only send her radio bearings, um, but was also there, they were going to send like a plume of smoke in the air as like a visual cue. So the Itasca was really there 
who was purposely put there to help her get to Howland Island. She was next heard from at 6.14 a.m. when she informed them she was 200 miles away and requested the Itasca provide bearings. The Itasca sent transmission after transmission, but it became clear that while they could hear Amelia, she could not hear them. Oh, that is so eerie. It is so eerie. At 7.42 a.m., she radioed, we must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low. Oh, man. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. As the crew of the Atasca struggled to figure out what to do next, I mean, they know she she does not have fuel to spare. I mean, we have got to get her. We've got to find her. But they couldn't. She wasn't picking up on any of their radio signals. She radioed one last time. We are running north and south. While this was a simple direction call, letting others know she would be looking for Helen Island, these words would come to hold so much more significance as they were the final words ever heard from Amelia. Hmm. Just one hour after her final transmission, the Atasca began combing the water for Amelia Earhart, Fred Noonan, and their aircraft. They were soon joined by additional Navy ships. After searching the waters proved fruitless, teams moved south of Howland Island to a group of islands known as the Felix Phoenix Islands to see if Earhart and Noonan may have crash landed there. Now, it took them about a week to make it down that way because they really felt like she must have been close to Howland Island. So almost everything was around that area. So kind of the ocean around it. And then they moved south to these other islands. And Garner Island was one of the bigger islands in this group. It's now known as Nicomararo because it's under different um, ownership. But it gained the most attention because it contained a shallow central lagoon. It has like a reef. It's like a coral reef in the center of the lagoon that many theorized Emilia could have maybe crash landed in and then swam to safety, either waited or, or swam to safety. And a Navy search pilot searching from the air even noticed what he said could have been signs of life on the island. This was unusual because the island had been previously inhabited, but had been deserted for decades, like 40 years. Nobody had been on the island. Okay. His report read, here, signs of recent habitation were clearly visible, but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit an answering wave from possible inhabitants. And it was finally taken for granted that none were there. Oh, like, what if she was injured or something and couldn't respond, but was on the island? Right. Right. Ooh. And, you know, a lot of this goes into the theory, you know, most people thought she just ran out of fuel and just crashed into the ocean. So not a ton of people were thinking she could have crash landed. I don't know. I feel like they should have investigated a little bit more. I mean... I can't say they didn't try, though. They spent about $4 million, which was a small fortune back in that time. It was actually the largest search and rescue operation ever um, executed okay. by the U.S. Navy to try to say, It's kind her. of a small fortune now. Yeah, that's a lot of money. So it's not like they phoned it in, but they just had just a huge area to look at. That it- I'd be curious to know what the signs of life on the island where like what does that even mean yeah all we have is this report right here wow that's all we have so the official the official search which called off on july 19th with no signs of the plane amelia or fred noonan outside of this possible inhabitation of garner island 
George Putnam then organized and funded his own searches on the water and several islands, including Gardner. So there were boots on the ground on Gardner, but everything proved fruitless. They couldn't find anything. Okay. In 1937, G.P. Putnam compiled periodic journal entries from Amelia's world flight attempt that she sent back to the United States during the final weeks prior to her departure from New Guinea in a book called Last Flight. On January 5th, 1939, after some legal wrangling, Putnam had Amelia Earhart, flight extraordinaire, declared dead. Hmm. This allowed him to use her estate to pay off the fees for the search and settle her remaining affairs. Almost 90 years later, the question of what happened to Amelia Earhart, Fred Noonan, and the Lockheed Electra persists. Most historians hold to the simple crash and sink theory. But a number of other possibilities have been proposed, including several conspiracy theories. Many researchers believe that Earhart and Noonan ran out of fuel while searching for Howland Island, ditched at sea, and died. A number of recovery teams analyzing the final hours of Earhart's trip concluded that they crash-landed around or just north of Howland Island and that the plane now rests on the sea floor some 17 to 18,000 feet down. And yes, that's probably the most likely scenario. However, there is reason to believe they survived the landing, at least for a few days. Between Earhart and Noonan's disappearance on July 2nd and the search operations ending on July 19th, there are 120 reports of strange radio communications coming from the area of Howland Island. Oh, seeing as how this is a completely uninhabited area and the only places these transmissions could have come from was either the Atasca or Amelia's Electra. You're thinking, okay, if the Atasca didn't send them, who sent them? While these distress calls were taken seriously at first and indeed even used by the Navy in the original search for Earhart, when the search was called off, These transmissions were thrown out and just considered hoax calls. Nobody ever looked into them again. Okay. So as they were coming in, the Navy's like, yes, they may help indicate where Earhart is. But then when, you know, they just kind of went with this crash and sink theory, they thought, well, people are just misreporting. They don't know what they heard. Okay. Yeah. Well. In 2012, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGER, decided to examine each of these transmissions to see if they could have come from Amelia's Electra and found that of the 120, 57 were considered credible. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Tigar built a detailed catalog and analysis of all the reported post-lost radio signals and selected the credible ones based on their frequencies. On her world flight, Amelia transmitted on 3105 kilohertz at night and 6210 kilohertz during the day using her 50 watt WE13C transmitter. And it has been confirmed that there were no other transmission devices in the area that could transmit voice signals on 3105 kilohertz, including the Atasca. They could use that frequency, but they could only send basically Morse code. They could send beeps and dashes. They could not use voice. Hers was the only one that would be able to use voice on that frequency. So if something was heard 
on that frequency that indicated it was her stands to reason it might have been her. Right. Right? At least four radio signals are of particular interest as they were simultaneously heard by more than one station. The first signal made when Earhart had been officially missing for just five hours was received by the Itasca and two other ships, the HMS Achilles and the SS New Zealand Star. The Itasca logged the message as, We hear her on 3105 now, very weak and unreadable. They asked Earhart to send Morse code dashes back because they said, We can't hear what you're saying, just send Morse code. The Achilles did not hear a weak and unreadable voice, but they did hear Itasca's request and then heard dashes in response to their request. Okay. Yeah, they heard the Morse code be sent back. The SS New Zealand only heard the response Morse code dashes. Okay, so they each heard little bits, but when you put it all together, you have a whole story. Yes. Okay. Compelling, right? Yes. And and these are response ships. I mean, these aren't going to make it up. Right. Right? In other cases, credible sources in widely separated locations in U.S., Canada, and the Central Pacific reported hearing a woman requesting help. She spoke English. And in some cases, she said she was identified as Amelia Earhart. In one case on July 5th, the U.S. Navy radio in Wayloop, Honolulu, heard a garbled Morris code. 281 North Howland, call K-H-A-Q-Q, beyond north, won't hold with us much longer, above water, shut off. Now, K-H-A-Q-Q is Amelia's call sign. Wow. Yeah. At the same time, an amateur radio operator in Melbourne, Australia, reported having heard a, quote, strange code, which included K-H-A-Q-Q. Again, Amelia's call sign. This information is made even more compelling when you take the time of day the calls were made into consideration. To make multiple transmissions, the Electra plane needed to run right-hand generator-equipped engine to recharge the batteries. So you had to run the battery, you had to run the engine in order to charge the battery on the transmitter. Mm -hmm. The safest procedure is to transmit only when the engine is running and the battery power is required to start the engine. To run the engine, the propeller must be clear of obstructions, right? So the the propeller has to go because it's powered with the engine, so you can't have anything in the way of it, and water level must never touch the transmitter. Okay. So this means in order for these transmissions to work, the Electra had to be out of the water. Okay. Sitting on top of something, on top of a reef, on top of land, out, not in the water. Okay. In order if for it's these floating in the water, it's not going to be not going to work because the propeller will not work. Exactly. Gotcha. The propeller won't work. Things will be wet. Not going to happen. Okay. So to kind of look at this hypothesis that the plane landed maybe even on that reef shoal on Nicomororo on mm-hmm. Gardner Island. Tiger researchers analyzed tidal conditions on the island from July 2nd to July 9th of 1937. 
it emerged that transmissions of credible signals occurred in periods during which the water level on the reef was low enough to permit engine operation. Ooh, wow. It's kind of compelling. According to the Tigar hypothesis, Amelia would have used the aircraft's radio to make distress calls for several days until the plane was washed over the reef and disappeared before Navy searchers flew over the area. Because remember, it took them a week Mm -hmm. to get down there after she disappeared. There were several searches officially and unofficially in the years following the search of the Navy and that of G.P. Putnam. Several attempts at settling the island that wound up failing. And in 1939, a survey of the island was completed and no evidence of the plane or its pilots were found. Okay. However, in 1940, a discovery was made. Thirteen bones. Ooh. A human skull, both arm bones from both arms, a tibia and a fibula from uh, a lower leg, and two femurs, which are the thigh bones, along with a woman's shoe. <gasps> no. Uh-huh, uh-uh. A Benedictine bottle, which I'll go into, and a sextant box, which I'll go into. The Benedictine bottle was it's an herbal liqueur that was made in France. So it's like a cordial, if you will. Okay. And Amelia loved it. So oh, she used wow. it as her celebratory drink. So she would have had it. She would have had it on the flight. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know. I mean, how'd that get on this island? How did that get on this island? With and it would bones. be kind of a coincidence, right? Sure. Now, are you familiar with what a sextant is? No. So a sextant is one of those old tiny measuring instruments with like the two spikes and you like swirl them around on the oh, map yes. and to the, like yes yes yeah and the to, circle exactly mm-hmm. um so they found a box which a sextant would have gone in. okay okay which you would need when flying a plane certainly fred noonan would have had one right on this plane um now they weren't able to track the box back to the electra but it's still a really interesting find very interesting especially when put together with the other findings exactly the bones were sent to fiji where they were examined by physician dw hoodless even though forensic osteontology was still in its infancy hoodless took measurements of the bones and using the most accurate scales at the time determined that the bones were that of a short stocky male european with most already assuming the crash and sink theory to be true and hoodless claiming the remains were not that of Earhart. Interest was lost in the case, and the bones were either lost or discarded. We just talked about this. Right. About destroying evidence of any Why kind. Why do we ever do this? Right. As the years passed, however, renewed interest in the case led to a re-examination of Hoodless's findings. While the bones themselves were not available, Hoodless's measurements of the long bones survived. Plugging his collected data into current computer models reveal that it is possible the bones could more closely resemble those of Earhart than originally thought. Mm. In 2019, National Geographic special Expedition Amelia depicts an August 2019 search for Earhart's aircraft off Nicomararo's Reef, conducted by ocean explorer Robert Ballard. Who has found several? Who has found several ocean wrecks, including the Titanic? Okay, so so he has I'd a resume. Say he's an, I say he's an expert. Yeah, 
Bollard was intrigued by the documented radio signals they had talked about, which seemed like they were coming from Nicomararo. Although they were taken from, you know, different locations and times, he thought this is pretty compelling, just like we did. After days of searching the deep cliffs, supporting the island and the nearby ocean, Ballard did not find any evidence of the plane or any associated wreckage of it. He said, we feel like if her plane was there, we would have found it pretty early in the expedition. The documentary states of the Gardner Island hypothesis that it's a nice story. But like all other evidence obtained here over the decades, there is no provable link to Amelia or her plane. Hey, let me ask this, though. What was the stature of Amelia's navigator? Because if they weren't her bones, if it was a short, stocky man's bones, could it have been him? Um. So they, what's funny about this is there's no actual measurements of heights Okay. Of Amelia or Fred. Okay. Now, many people have analyzed because there are a ton of photos of Amelia. Mm-hmm. And they've done things like measuring the inseam of her pants and the estimating things. They figure she was about 5'8". I mean, as a woman, she was she was much taller than okay. the average woman. So she was about 5'8". And Fred was taller than her. Okay. Um, so short. And they assumed... Well, at least Hoodless assumed that these skeletons were somebody that was only about 5'5". Five, five. Okay. So, but then with these new um, these new models, they're thinking maybe it, it could have been a bit taller. So it's possible it was Amelia, but it's still not a smoking gun. Like, you know, and even Hoodless, some of his, some of the formulas have changed. Because again, he was trying to, basically invent forensic sure you know osteology um and so some of the formulas have changed a little bit but no one has completely thrown out his observations okay another theory is that Earhart and noonan were captured by japanese forces after drifting into japanese territory in search of land on either saipan or the marshall islands In 1990, the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries broadcast an interview with a Saipanese woman who claimed to have witnessed Earhart and Noonan's execution by Japanese soldiers. Now, she again, eyewitness testimony, she seemed very convincing, but unfortunately there have not been any independent confirmations that have come out to say, yes, this is what happened. A slightly different version of the Japanese called a slightly different version of the Japanese capture hypothesis is not that the Japanese captured Earhart, but rather they shot down the plane as they were drifting into their territory. Since the end of World War II, a location in Tenian, which is five miles southwest of, De- of Saipan, has been rumored to be the grave of the two aviators. And 2004, an archaeological dig at the site failed to turn up any bones, however. A recent proponent of this theory is Mike Campbell, who published a 2012 book, Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last, and its favor. Campbell cites claims from Marshall Islanders to have witnessed a crash, as well as a U.S. Army sergeant who found a suspicious grave site near a former Japanese prison on Siam. 
a number of Earhart's relatives have been convinced that the Japanese were somehow involved in Amelia's disappearance, citing unnamed witnesses, including Japanese troops and Saipan natives. I mean, it's possible. Who's to say that couldn't have happened? Sure. Sure. In 2017, a History Channel documentary called Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, proposed that a photograph in the National Archive of Jalut Atoll in the Marshall Islands was actually a picture of a captured Earhart and Noonan. The picture showed a Caucasian male on a dock who appeared to look like Noonan and a woman sitting on the dock but facing away from the camera who would judge to have a physique and haircut resembling Earhart. I have seen the picture. It absolutely does look like them. Just going to say that for the record. All right. The documentary theorizes that the photo was taken after Earhart and Noonan crashed at Melia Toll. The documentary also says that physical evidence recovered from Melia matches pieces that could have fallen off an Electra during a crash or like subsequent overland movement, like mm-hmm, of a barge, mm-hmm. if they had like picked the plane up. The lost evidence proposed that a Japanese ship seen in the photograph was the Koshumaro, a Japanese military ship. So they like really dissected this photo. A Japanese blogger named Kota Yamano, however, has tried to discredit this theory by uncovering that the source of the photo was a Japanese travel guide published in October of 1935, implying that the photograph was taken in 1935 or before, and thus would be unrelated to Earhart and Noonan's 1937 disappearance. Well, if that can be validated, there you go. There goes he that. says it can. But who knows with photos that old, to tell you the truth. But yeah, he's claiming, I mean, this Well, whole, if you could find the travel guide. If you could find dated. the travel guide. He says he can find it. The History Channel did this whole documentary, and they didn't seem to think that's where it came from. Okay. Yeah. I'm just giving both sides of the yeah. story. Now, show us the travel guide. Show us the travel guide. Yeah. That's exactly right. Now, critics of this theory cite the tremendous distance between Highland Island and the Marshall Islands. I mean, they must have been really off track if they were going to get there. And again, they didn't have a ton of fuel. So they must have been off track for quite a while in order to reach them. Not saying they couldn't, but it was a tremendous distance. Also, many have theorized that if the Japanese had found the wreckage, they would more than likely have had substantial motivation to rescue the famous aviators and be proclaimed heroes. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would just depend on who found them. Was it someone that could reason through that and think through that? Or was that somebody that just didn't like Americans? Right. Who knows? You'd have to, you'd have to stop and think what's more beneficial and like see the bigger picture. To our country as a whole. Right. Exactly. Which, you know, who knows? Who knows? Another nod to Japan's involvement in Earhart's disappearance is her possible involvement in Tokyo Rose. Now, I had to tell my husband about Tokyo Rose, too. Now, he's like a total, like, World War II buff, and even he wasn't familiar with Tokyo Rose. Tokyo Rose was a name given by Allied troops in the South Pacific during World War II to all female English-speaking radio broadcasters of Japanese propaganda. The programs were broadcast in the South Pacific and North America to demoralize Allied troops 
abroad and their families at home by emphasizing troops' wartime difficulties and military losses. Wow. Yeah. One of the voices on the wire sounded like that of Earhart. It was theorized that she had been captured and forced to make broadcast against her will and against her country. So much emphasis was put on this theory that even Putnam himself took notice and spent many hours listening to the broadcast. Now, after listening to several different voices, he concluded that none were Amelia, but there still is a theory that she was kind of in this network of women. It was fascinating, the whole Tokyo Rose case. Many of the voices, uh, they were Japanese women that spoke English. Um, They weren't captured Americans. I'm sure there were a few in there, but they were actually like punished for like war crimes. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah, incredible. But maybe this is a theory, but Putnam, I bring it up because if George Putnam thought there was a possibility, I think it's worth us exploring as well. But nothing sure. ever came of it. At the same time, I think if it were if it were my spouse who this happened to, I'd look into every potential into theory. So for him to ultimately say, I don't hear her voice on here, yeah. I would say that yeah. this is one of the lesser likely. Lesser likely, but still notable. Yeah, absolutely. Decades after her presumed death... Earhart was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 1968 and the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1973. She now has several commemorative memorials named in her honor around the United States, including an urban park, an airport, a residence hall, a museum, a research foundation, a bridge, a cargo ship, an Earthfield dam, four schools, a hotel, a playhouse, a library, multiple roads, and more. We love us some Earhart. (laughs) We sure do. She also has a minor planet, planetary corona, and newly discovered lunar crater named after her. Okay. Didn't even know what a planetary corona was. I I think it's a fireball. You girl. Does that sound right? (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. That's exactly. She is ranked ninth on flying's list of the 51 heroes of aviation. I'd like to leave Amelia with one of her amazing quotes. Aviation offered such fun as crossing the continent in planes, large and small, trying the whirling rotors of an auto gyro, making record flights. With these activities came opportunities to know more women everywhere who shared my conviction that there is so much women can do in the modern world and should be permitted to do irrespective of their sex. Now, I love that. And that sums her up. Yeah, girl power. She was amazing. That's amazing. Now, in August of 1929, a small group of female pilots met informally in Cleveland, Ohio, following the United States Women's Air Derby. And that group agreed that there was a need to form an organization to support women in the burgeoning field of aviation. And invitations to an initial meeting at a later date were sent out to all 117 female pilots licensed at the time. And at the suggestion of Amelia Earhart, the organization's name was taken from the number of charter members settling on the 99s based on the responses received by Christmas. Which is the cutest name ever. It sounds like a little band name. The 99s. The 99s. I love it. 
1931, Amelia was elected as her first president. So this wasn't her organization, but I mean, pretty much. (laughs) The 99's Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund, or AEMSF program, assists in funding flight training, technical training, or academics for both recreational and career track women pilots by awarding scholarships to qualified members. The AEMSF First Wings Award is a progressive milestone scholarship of up to $6,000 to assist a student pilot, 99, in completing her private pilot training. In addition to the AEMSF program, many individual chapters of the 99s give their own flight scholarships to benefit local women aviators. Now, moving on to the Branch of Hope report. Your December 2023 nonprofit options are the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund hosted by the 99s, which I covered in today's episode, or Superstition Search and Rescue that we covered in the Lacey and Connor Peterson case last week in episode 23. To vote, head to our Facebook page to let us know through our online poll which fund speaks to you. There are no strings attached, no gimmicks. Just let us know which organization you would like to support. We are simply a podcast leading through words and actions, and we want to make sure your voice is heard. If you loved this episode, love us or love the Branch of Hope, tell someone. We are doing good work, and we need you to help spread the good word. You can also join our Patreon, which will allow us to keep creating and connecting with you. Please send us an email at the dark oak podcast at gmail.com where we are open to your questions, comments, and anything else you want to share. And for other ways to connect, hop over to the darkoak.com. Be sure to follow us on our next episode where we cover new information about the solder children disappearance. Thanks for listening, Shiver Seekers. You rock. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Creep for our amazing music.